Welcome to Stacey on the Right, the podcast. I'm so excited to have with me someone that I have been trying to interview for, I'd say maybe seven or eight years. I literally have said to my husband, he's on my bucket list. I'm crossing it off today. Welcoming into the show, Dennis Prager, founder of Prager University, best-selling author of the Rational Bible series and many other books, one of which is Happiness is a Serious Thing. That's like my favorite book for years and years and years. Dennis, thank you for joining me today. That was a beautiful introduction, and I got to say, being on someone's bucket list is a big honor. (laughs) Well, I have to say, for me, I have listened to you so many times on the radio. I'll be just, you know, doing things around the house listening to you, and you'll hit a point, and I'll go, exactly, exactly, Dennis. So it's nice to actually have you here to talk to instead of kind of talking in a one-sided conversation. (laughs) Well, that's great. Glad to be with you. Thanks. So can we talk first about, because you've written so many books on such wide and varying range of of subjects, and really they touch all issues and areas of life. But then a few years back, you decided to write what you call the Rational Bible Series. And this is different because, um, well, first of all, you are Jewish, and I'm I'm an evangelical Christian, so the likelihood of us actually kind of sitting and, and having conversations about the Bible at one point in our history would seem very, very unlikely. But here we are today, and your Rational Bible series has been a wildly popular series, very successful, and it struck such a chord with people. Why did you decide to do this particular series of books? Wow, there are so many answers, so I'll try to be concise. First of all, good intentions don't make a good world. Wisdom does. And the secular world is bereft of wisdom. There is not a single secular institution that produces anything wise. The most secular institutions, our universities, produce the least wisdom. So it's clear, it became clear to me when I was at Columbia University for graduate school, that if we don't reaffirm the Bible as the source of wisdom, the society is doomed. I I realized this very early in life, spent much of my life teaching the first five books of the Bible, because they're the central books of the Bible, whether Old or New Testament. I know Biblical Hebrew very well, so that made that obviously possible. And I realized when my classes were half Christian and half Jewish and half everything else, which I know it's three halves, but still, I, I realized either uh, the, the five books known as the Torah have something to say to everybody, or they have nothing to say to anybody. The idea that those books are just for Jews or even just for Jews and Christians is as silly as Beethoven is just for Germans. So this this is the most powerful source of wisdom It's the basis of Western civilization, the Bible, and especially the five books. And I realized most people picking them up get an idea, but not more than an idea about what they're saying. There's a lot of very tough stuff to understand today, and I believe that I can explain it. And that's what I've been doing with the Rational Bible, Exodus and uh, Genesis, and now today, Deuteronomy. I didn't go in order, obviously. Forgive me the dog. We have the same thing. We have a dog here, and Bentley likes to bark whenever anything special and important is going on. And I, I'm actually yeah, surprised yeah. he's not doing it right now because I'm talking to you. Uh-huh. But um, that being said, so Deuteronomy, and you you hit on something, Dennis, that I think is so important for us to kind of highlight when we're talking about the Bible. I, I study the Bible quite a bit. In fact, one of my favorite things to do is join Bible studies, and I, I have such rich 
relationships and conversations studying the Bible, Old Testament and New. And I do agree with you wholeheartedly that you cannot have wisdom without reading the Bible. And our culture used to be based on that. Everyone in America would have read the Bible through at least once, but most Americans many, many times at one point in our history. And nowadays, it's almost pushed off to the side as something that only you know, uh, like extremists read. And that that is what makes it so imperative for someone to take it down to a level where a lay person will feel more comfortable digging into it. And so you have this book on Deuteronomy as the latest one. You're not going in order, you're just taking them as you see fit, which I think also makes for a very interesting study for someone who has not approached the Bible at all. So American schools today teach that the Bible is part fiction, that it's um, it's phantasmagorical. I've seen all kinds of categorizations that really belie the fact that it is, it's a history book. Um, why would someone who actually thinks the Bible is a series of religious fairy tales consider buying your commentary on Deuteronomy? Because the, the issue isn't, did it actually happen? Although I do believe that it actually happened. I believe mm-hmm that the, the Israelites were in Egypt and that there was an exodus. And I believe that Moses got the tablets on Sinai, but that's not the point. The point, again, I go back to the wisdom. So I, I, I ask these people who say, oh, it's fairy tales. Okay, fine, it's fairy tales. So since the Western world got its wisdom from these fairy tales, where, where do you get your wisdom from? What, what's your better replacement? As, as a source of understanding life and how to be a decent person. And then I get nothing. I get zilch. I get, oh, well, I live life, uh, my, my own experiences. So basically, so you're wiser than the basis of Western civilization. You really think uh, very highly of yourself. I salute you. <laughs> and so that's, that's so true because we, it, in modern America, People who really have very, very little in the way of wisdom often consider themselves to be the epitome of like a a shining star and light and example for the rest of us, but they don't do the heavy lifting. And to me, the heavy lifting, it's not just reading the Bible. Like I would read, you know, Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, and those are very deep and rich authors as well, but you can read those for fun, for pleasure, come away changed and really not need to share anything on them, although you could. But the Bible is different in that I feel every person who reads it is changed. And so a person who would say they're an expert or are very wise or commend themselves to us as someone who should tell all of us as a society what to do, but considers the Bible to be fairy tales or fables, that in and of itself disqualifies them from being of any service to us as a nation because they refuse to, basically it's the basics, it's the very, the, the ground floor level. Have you ever read the Bible? That I think that should be a standard for us. Do you feel that way? Yeah, well, that's that's my point. Look, the, the arrogance of dismissing the basis of Western civilization. I mean, was Shakespeare an idiot for using the Bible? Were, were the founders of the United States who cited the Bible more than any other book also idiots? But they do believe that. The arrogance of the left, I'm not talking about the liberal, I'm talking about the left, the arrogance of these people it really enters the sphere of what the Greeks call hubris. It's it's almost beyond belief. Basically, they're saying, I'm smarter than anyone who lived before me. That's what they really do believe. I'm better and smarter. I'm, I'm a finer human being than Jefferson because I don't have slaves, and I'm a wiser human being than Washington who actually cited the Bible. That's what they believe. And they produce a world in which uh, kids are, are told, 
uh, that men give birth. We are drowning in dribble, in nonsense, in dangerous nonsense. And, and they say, oh, we don't need the Bible. Really? So look at what happens in a post-biblical world. Look at what people have to believe. That the freest country in the history of the world is systemically racist. That men give birth and menstruate. That children can decide when they're 11 years old if they're the opposite sex. I, I, I mean, <laughs> life is a living refutation of the anti-biblical secular world. So, with that being said, there are some really interesting things within this commentary on Deuteronomy. Inside, you have an essay called Fear of God is Morally and Psychologically Necessary. Make the case for us on that. Yeah. So, the, it's interesting that modern translations, because they're scared of, of the Bible, they really are, they're wimps. Uh, in, including the translation that I have used, and I, I keep correcting it in my commentary because I know Hebrew very well. Uh, it says that you should fear God, and they translate it as revere God. But th- that's absurd. You know, I, I revere the 1927 Yankees. I don't fear them. The, the revere and fear are not are not even synonymous. They're, they're not even necessarily related. You're, you're supposed to fear God, because if you fear God, you won't fear man, and if you fear God, you'll do what's right. In Exodus, there's the story of the midwives that were told by Pharaoh, who was the, the, the demigod of Egypt, to kill the Hebrew babies, baby boys that would be born. And it says they didn't, and it gives the reason, because the midwives feared God. If you fear God, you don't fear man. The, the, the tragedy of of the 20th century is how many people feared Hitler more than God, feared Stalin more than God, feared Mao more than God. And we are, we're, we're seeing that in America, where people fear the New York Times or, or social media more than they fear God. So it's morally absolutely necessary. By the way, related and, and proving the point, there's one other being that we're told to fear in, in the uh, Torah, the five books. And that is our parents. So I did an interesting experiment, and I'm the only Bible commentator who can do this experiment. I've had a radio show for 40 years. I ask people all sorts of questions because I I have this laboratory of humanity uh, as a talk show host. So I said once, call in and tell me why you didn't take drugs if you didn't. Uh, In high school, I think I said. And virtually every person called up with the same answer. My mother would kill me. They feared their mother. That's why they didn't uh, take drugs. Uh, if, if you don't fear the police, you have chaos, which is what we're having now. Fewer and fewer people fear the police. But we're told to fear God and fear our parents. And uh, we're also told to love God, but we're not told to love our parents. It's very interesting. Uh, the Bible's very wise. Some people can't love their parents, but everybody can at least try to love God. Yep. And and I'll, you you may not have the best parents. You may not have parents who actually look after you or have your best interests at heart. Not everyone has the best parents. Um, but we do know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and He never changes. And so we can endeavor in our own human way to love Him and fear Him, which is, according to the Bible, the beginning of all knowledge. And that's what keeps me coming back to it, Dennis, over and over again, 
even when I've, I'm like, okay, I've read the Bible through. I've also done Bible studies on you know these particular books, and I have this understanding. But there's always some moment when I'm reading the Bible and I come across something that I feel like I don't really understand that part. I, this this scripture feels a little unknown to me, and then I can join a Bible study and learn more about that scripture and how it connects to all of the rest of scripture for a better understanding, which then gives me more knowledge and wisdom and helps me to love God in a better way. As you know, obviously we can't love him perfectly, but we can definitely make more of an effort than people who say they're just not even going to read the Bible. They're not going to give it an opportunity. I feel like on a basic level, if you're an atheist, you still want to read the Bible because as the basics of Western civilization, there are so many references and things that we use in culture and in movies and in literature that you can't actually grasp if you don't know they come from the Bible and what their context is. So on a more more basic level, it's just so you don't feel disconnected from the world in which you live as a reason why you would read it. I would think that uh, the... The individual who doesn't believe in God should read the Bible as much as the individual who does believe in God. Again, you can't be good if you're not wise. There's nothing that compares. The second best is Shakespeare. But this is the first. It's also a moral guide, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm what, I, what I call an ethical monotheist. I believe in one God for all of humanity who demands that we, we be good to our fellow man who judges every human being may not sit well with some of your listeners. And I, uh, cause I, I have a vast evangelical audience. So I, and I work for evangelicals and I love these people, <laughs> but sometimes I say stuff that is a little jarring. I think it's more important to tell people that God judges them than God loves them. I think you'll end up with more goodness on earth. If people believe in a judging God than a loving God. I want them to believe in both. But uh, we have gone way too much in, in the extreme by just neglecting that God is a judge. And that is a huge part of, of, the, uh, of the Bible, that God judges human beings. He, he makes moral demands on us. And to think that some of this stuff was written 3,000 years ago in the late Bronze Age, I'll give you my favorite law in Deuteronomy that almost nobody remembers or even knows. If you're uh, a soldier in battle and you you win you win the the war the battle and you want uh, you see a woman you're attracted to so what happens in in virtually every war in history women are raped Deuteronomy has an incredible law you can't touch her if you want her you can take her home she has to sit for 30 days and mourn her family, can't touch her during those 30 days. And if you do want her physically, you have to marry her. Can you imagine this was written in the late Bronze Age? It's it's striking. And, and also in the fact that people often say that the Bible is misogynistic and that women don't have a good place in the Bible, that women aren't treated with respect. The women, but the women in, the, in the Bible, and especially in the first five books, they're so positively uh, depicted that there are secular scholars who think women wrote it. Well, we know that women didn't write it, but it is well. It men is a didn't testament. write it either. I, 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 right. it's, it's too, it's too much of a shock. Everything about it is different. Just the very first verse of the Bible. 
in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is the opposite of every pagan civilization, because it means that God created nature. He's not part of nature. Every single God in the world was part of nature, except the God of the Bible. So that's, to me, just one facet, one aspect of the excitement of studying the Bible. So uh, you have actually um, covered within Deuteronomy and your expose on it a subject that is kind of, it's a hot-button issue right now, and that is women wearing men's clothing, men wearing women's clothing, which 20 years ago I just thought of it as women wearing a man's suit jacket or pants that were fashioned in the way that men's pants were fashioned but now we have a lot of kind of it's it's like crazy people who are in charge of us without us ever giving ourselves over to them in the transgender movement. So what does the commandment that says neither sex may wear the clothing of the other sex mean for today? It means exactly that. And here is a perfect reason why the left hates the Bible. This is where I love clarity. I have had a 25 year motto for my radio show. I prefer clarity to agreement. So here's a perfectly clarifying moment that leftism is the opposite of the Bible. One of them is wrong. They can't both be right. Deuteronomy prohibits men from wearing women's clothing and vice versa. And uh, the left wants men to wear, not, not even transgender, just men in general. They, they, you know, Drag queen uh, story hour for kids uh, who are five years of age. The Bible is built, again, the first five books are the foundation. The first five books are built on the concept of distinctions. God and man is a distinction. Man and nature is a distinction. Man and animals, parents and children, good and evil, and man and woman. Man and woman is the only built-in distinction. And God created the human being, male and female, he created them. That was built in that distinction by God. That is the belief. The left could say it's nonsense, and they do say it's nonsense. Fine. One of us is wrong. Well, I know that it's something that people are getting canceled for, but in my opinion, it's worth the cancellation to stand on the truth. Do you feel like we're reaching a point where we'll see more people of prominence and regular people simply stand up and say it's not right to say a man can be a woman or to pretend that men can menstruate or or get pregnant and have babies? Do you feel like we're getting uh, you know, sick up to our necks with it, or, or will we have to suffer through this some more? Suffer through it some more. Mm. What, I, what I've, I've learned in the last few years is the opposite of something I believed all my life since I studied communism at the Russian Institute at Columbia University in graduate school. I thought that you could only brainwash people in a dictatorship. And... I thought that much of my life, and I was wrong. You can brainwash people in a democracy, and that's exactly what has happened. People who believe two-year-olds should wear masks will also believe men menstruate. I mean, it's just dastardly. It feels like we're in the Twilight Zone or some movie where any minute someone's going to pop out and say, ha-ha, just kidding, this isn't really the way things are, but it is the way things are. So in in that vein, and I, I don't feel fatalistic about it at all. In the Bible, even in the worst of times, people rejoiced and they looked to God for their encouragement and their hope, and they persevered. And so you're when, when we're talking about the land of Canaan, and this is one of my favorite subjects that I've ever studied in the Bible, the Canaanites, and then what happened to them when the Israelites came in and executed God's wrath and judgment upon them. And, you know, they were devoted to destruction and wiped from the face of the earth. 
you have the Canaanites already living there. And a lot of people feel like this is one of the areas in the Bible where it demonstrates that God is actually not love, he's not good, he's evil, and that because they don't understand what they read or they haven't read it at all, they've just heard, they fail to grasp the idea that the Canaanites were given 450 years in which to repent and turn from their evil ways of baby sacrifice and all kinds of just weird, crazy, whacked out stuff. And they didn't. They refused to do that. And so then they were to be wiped away and the land was to be given to a new people who would not defile it and, you know, would live clean, upright lives. So in your opinion, is it that people don't want to understand that it wasn't a genocide or is it that they can't because they haven't read it? Neither, in my opinion. They, if there was nothing about Canaanites in the Bible, they'd have found another reason to dismiss the Bible or the God of the Bible. After all, I don't. Why do they need Canaan? God, didn't God kill the firstborn in Egypt? Those were innocent kids. What, why don't they raise that? What, what about uh, even more? God, according to this book that they dismiss, this God destroyed the entire world except for Noah and his family. I mean, you know, Canaan is this tiny fraction of, of the world. Why don't they raise that? The, God doesn't, doesn't play around. He wants people to be good. If, if, you, if you sacrifice children, as the Canaanites did, and it says clearly, mm-hmm. because they were awful, they were kicked out of their land. And by the way, they were never wiped out. They appear later in the Bible. Oh, yeah. No, they weren't completely wiped out because the Israelites well, weren't obedient. So just right. For the record, it's just, yeah. just worth noting. So uh, the God who said, love your neighbor as yourself— uh, don't touch a woman unless you marry her, uh, even if you conquer her in war. And uh, love, love God and gave the Ten Commandments. Uh, I'll bet on that God. Anyway, uh, the, the, the godless have slaughtered more people than the, the Christians and Jews in all of history. The 20th century was the greatest genocides in the history of the world, and they were all committed by secular governments, most of them profoundly anti-religious. So I can't say I'm distraught about the Canaanites of 3,000 years ago, but I am distraught uh, about the 60 million Mao killed, the 20 to 40 million Stalin killed, the 10 million Hitler killed. Uh, It's really remarkable how these secular people think that they have the moral high ground. Not even close, but I, I feel like the more they create that narrative, and you talked about indoctrination, They've indoctrinated half of America to believe they actually do have the moral high ground. And that involves, you know, castrating, uh, chemically castrating American children who are suffering from gender dysphoria. It involves killing unborn babies, millions of them for convenience, for contraception and so many other ills that we, you know, the pornographic books in the schools and the teaching children how to have sex, little children, not teaching them that there are male and female, but that or, or anatomy, teaching them actual rudiments of sex in public school and now private schools. But those are the people who feel they have the high ground, which leads me to a, a question. And I've been wanting to ask you this for years. And so here it comes, Dennis. How do we reinstill the moral fortitude and courage in Americans today that we once had, where we would stand up to evil, where we, you know, men would come and say that you, you not only can you not 
teach our children this in schools. You can't teach in our schools anymore. That would be the dads who would come to a school meeting and toss a teacher out or toss a principal out and say, you don't work here anymore. You can't teach our children anymore. Not we're removing our children. You can't teach our children anymore. You will not show up to this building again. How do we get that kind of courage that we once had back into Americans today? There is one way to get courage. Or there is a, there, maybe there's more than one way, but the way to get courage is to want to be courageous. Act courageous, you'll have courage. The issue isn't to get courage and then act on it. The issue is to act as if you're courageous, and then you'll be courageous. So ask yourself, if I had courage, what would I do? And then do it. Wow. That's it. If I had courage, what would I do? Yeah. If I had courage, what would I do? That, that's it. A great, great guiding question in life. And one thing, in fact, in the case of children, doesn't even take courage. Take your kid out of school immediately so that you save his or her life. Homeschool your child. That doesn't take courage. That what it takes is not being lazy. And then it takes the desire. I really feel like, Dennis, there's a lack of desire and a lot of parents in America today to really know their own children and to really have that close interaction with them. They almost, it's like, oh, you know, I have to go to college. I have to get married. I have to have two kids. It's not that they desire a close relationship. They've just checked off the box of having two kids and they can't wait to get them over to the public school or the private school to have someone else educate them and teach them about morals and teach them about all the things that it used to be strictly a parent's purview to instill in a child. And there's nothing better than having a real relationship with your own child. But so many Americans have no idea what that's like. And and I, I know that because when I talk about it, sometimes people email me and say, well, the thing is, you talk about having a relationship with your kid like that's really easy, but it, it isn't easy. It doesn't always work out. Well, I never ever said that it always works out, Dennis. I said it's worth working for. It's worth, you know, not not working as hard at your job, not doing some of the other things, personal interests that might be really important to you to have a close relationship with your child or to strive for it because children respond to you seeking them out and having a relationship, you wanting a relationship with them. They respond to that. And if you are dismissive to them and you don't have an interest in them, they respond to that too by not having an interest in you. So it's not about whether or not you accomplish it successfully. It's that you worked at it as hard as you could. And I believe you are rewarded for that And I hate it when people email me or say to me on the phone that they don't think it's possible or that it didn't work out for them. Therefore, it's not worth working on. It's something that we need to prioritize. And I don't see enough of that in our culture today. Right. I agree with every word you said. And I would just add, again, what will sound controversial, but I I don't think it is if people reflect on it. Just as I said, I think saying God is judge is more important than saying God is love. I think that parents providing moral guidelines is more important than even having a great relationship with the child. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, So my role as a parent was not primarily to be, well, it was not at all to be my child's pal. It's to be my child's parent. My role is to produce a responsible, happy, moral adult. That's my primary role. If a relationship is involved as well, that's beautiful. But I think of kids having relationships with friends or hopefully even siblings. But the parent's role is to provide moral guidelines 
And again, it's in the great biblical command, you shall teach these things when you lie down, mm-hmm. when you wake up, when you walk by the way. In other words, teach these values 24-7. Be a moral helicopter, not a soccer helicopter. <laughs> I agree with you. But so in in the context of parenting, when I say relationship, I'm not talking about friendship or relationship in in that way. I mean, the interaction that it takes to instill moral values in your child in the morning when you rise and the noonday and, you know, at dinner and at bedtime as the Bible commands means you're actually spending time talking to this kid. You're not just barking out orders a couple times a day. You're talking to them. You're explaining, right? You're explaining why the Canaanites were devoted to destruction. (laughs) You're not just letting them read about it and do a few homework items at at Christian school. You're talking to them about why you're instructing them. Or in our case, I, I just remember many times Dennis feeling like crying when I went to bed at night because I'd had a difficult day with the kids and then realizing the next day, you know, kids are, are, they're actually easier than adults in that you can have a rough day with them on Tuesday and on Wednesday, they wake up and they're pretty much, you know, they're good to go. They're, they're, they're not really holding a, a grudge. And so you can start over again and have, you know, a few laughs and enjoy. And then if they need to be disciplined again, you just go at it again and you never give up on that. And then later, as they're adults, it's, there's time for that other kind of relationship, which would be friendship or, you know, right, kind exactly. of being, being a support system. But um, right. the relationship I'm referring to is kind of like what you describe in your book, Happiness is a Serious Thing, where you talk about the responsibility of a husband and a wife to be happy because it enriches the life of the person they live with because no one wants to live with someone who's unhappy. And so you have to strive to be happy, not just for yourself, but for that other person because you don't want to make them miserable. That same kind of effort that you put into that, if you put into that kind of effort into being a parent where you're striving to be happy and for me, being happy was knowing that my children love God, love me and my husband, and love America, and respect authority. Those were things that I worked on continuously. And now that they're young adults and they have that as a part of who they are, we have a really rich friendship of sorts where I'm still their mom, but I also, you know, we can laugh at jokes and watch movies together and do things like that. So I, I just, I feel like it was worth the time I spent doing it and the things I missed out on. I can't even remember what they were because that was the thing that I really had to devote myself to because I wanted it more than anything else. And I wish more parents wanted that kind of a relationship, the teacher and the child, the parent and the child, more than anything else. But our culture today not only doesn't support that, but parents don't seem to want to fight through to have it. I'm with you. That's right. Well, all I could say is to uh, your Christian listeners, they should read the 4,000 reviews of my Rational Bible, Genesis and Exodus, how many Christians said that with all their Christian schooling, they learned so much from this, and it's to strengthen their faith. And and the, the reviews of agnostics who said, I, I'm finally understanding why people take God seriously. Mm. So I, I, really, I really hope that they'll read uh, the Rational Bible. It's, it, as I say to pastors all the time, I say, listen. This doesn't give you 50 sermons. I'll buy it back from you. <laughs> and have you had to buy it back? <laughs> Not yet. But maybe they're just sweet people and they don't uh, they don't bill me. Not yet. Well, uh, so um everybody, I'm so 
so grateful to have gotten my interview, the interview of a lifetime with Dennis Prager. His latest book is The Rational Bible, Deuteronomy, hardcover, October 11th issue. Uh, it's a number one in new release in Christian church and Bible history on Amazon. And as is my way, I put the link in the show notes of today's podcast and you can order it. And it says for me, free delivery tomorrow, seven hours and 47 minutes I have to order it and it'll be here tomorrow. But there's also the audiobook, Kindle and audio CD available for you. So you have no excuse. Get the Rational Bible Deuteronomy and then let me know how much you loved it. Dennis Prager, founder of PragerU. And now someone has been interviewed by Stacy on the right. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the podcast today. <laughs> it was a total joy. Bless you. Bless, bless you. Me. Thank you so much. I can't wait to tell all my friends that I talked to you. Have a wonderful day. Be well. Thank you. All right. So that's the podcast for today, my friends. Thank you for joining. Don't forget to check out The Rational Bible. You can also find it. It's already out at Barnes & Noble's. I saw it there three days ago. Um, so it was obviously delivered for pre-order for launch day, and they already had it on the shelves before it was launched. That's pretty amazing. Um, so check it out. And also check us out at familyvisionmedia.org. God bless. See you next time.